Welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SASPod. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. Today, we welcome on the SASPOD Isabel Salovara. Isabel is a PhD student in the Department of Anthropology at Stanford, where she explores the implications of India's large and varied tutoring, coaching, and test preparation institutions as sites for the production of personhood. She seeks to understand how these parallel or shadow education systems both shape and respond to shifting material and moral e economies in the context of post-liberalization urban India, and what they can teach us about the impact on young people of the increasing commodification of aspirational pathways. She has just returned from a year of fieldwork in Bihar, and we will be discussing her findings and the larger project in the podcast today. After that lengthy introduction, Isabel, welcome to the SASPOD. How are you? Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, I'm doing well. Great. Now, before we dive into your current research, and I'm so excited to have this conversation because this is something I've wondered about for decades at this point. Uh, but before we go into that, perhaps you can set the stage a little bit and tell us what led you to where you are today in terms of your studies. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, when I was an undergraduate studying history, I was fortunate to have the opportunity to travel to India. Um, this was in summer of 2010, and it was really my, my first time out of the United States almost. Um, and I went on that trip as part of my minor field, which was in global health and health policy. And I was volunteering in the Anganwadis, which are these government-run sort of preschool pre daycare centers um, that also have a nutri nutritional component. Mm -hmm. um, and at that time, I, you know, when I went, I really wasn't expecting to ever go back to India. Um, you know, it's sort of like, oh, this is something I'll go and experience. And then when I was there, um, having the opportunity to just begin learning a little bit about India's history, which was something that had been fairly absent from my education up till that point, um, starting to learn some Hindi and um, and just generally having a very pleasant experience. I was in Himachal Pradesh, which is you know beautiful. Um, so having you know had that positive experience there, I decided to go back. I started uh, learning Hindi back in the U.S. at college. Um, I went uh, on a study abroad program in Delhi. And then um, after I graduated, I basically sort of ended up moving to Delhi. And um, yeah, so I, uh, I, I think it was sort of my job there after I graduated that sort of got me onto this track of looking at tuitions and coaching. Um, 
Yeah, so the first thing that I did was I was on a sort of service fellowship where I was teaching um, English in uh, sort of the community center of an NGO. Mm -hmm. And my students there were primarily enrolled in government schools, but they were also, I learned, attending these paid tuition classes, which I think they viewed with a lot more enthusiasm than, than their government school classes. And, um, and some of them, I think, also interpreted me as a tuition teacher, even though you know, the NGO wasn't taking any fees or anything like that. Um, so I, this was sort of like my first introduction to this, which was very surprising for me because coming from the United States, I thought of tutoring as something that only rich people uh, sort of had access to. And so it was very different for me to see, um, you know, these families with very limited means who were uh, sending their children for these additional classes. And then my second job after that was working really at the opposite end of the socioeconomic spectrum. So I was um, counseling uh, high school students from very elite wealthy families in Delhi who were applying to college in uh, the UK or the US primarily. And what I found was that they also were attending various forms of extra classes outside of school. Um, and in a way, this was also surprising because, you know, you're already, your parents are already spending this incredible amount of money for these, in some cases, very expensive private schools, right. and still you are going to these extra classes. Um, and I particularly remember one young woman who was attending coaching at FITGI, which is one of the very large and famous franchises for preparing for the uh, IIT entrance exam. And I was not familiar with this whole process at the time. And um, it came up because she was trying to figure out how to explain why her grades in school had dropped. And the explanation was that she had been taking these very difficult coaching classes. And to me, this was very confusing because, you know, in my mind, tutoring should help you do better in school. Right. But I think that was for me that a sort of first glimpse into where a lot of this tutoring comes from which is sort of this divergence between what's happening in you know what you think of as sort of a traditional school setting whether that's just a government school or a private school and what's expected for a lot of these entrance exams to both you know desirable forms of higher education especially medical and engineering education or for government jobs and you then went to do your MPhil in Cambridge? Yeah, that's right. So I did uh, a couple of different research projects on, on tuitions in Delhi. Um, first, I did a, a, a Fulbright Fellowship, and then I went, went on and did my MPhil in anthropology and did some field work for that as well. And my research for that was focused on sort of smaller scale tuitions in Delhi. Um, so basically, um, women uh, I was mainly focusing on who were using this as a sort of gender appropriate job that they could do informally often in or near their homes mm -hmm. and sort of what the significance of tuitions was for them in terms of building an identity for themselves in the neighborhood. Wow. wow. It's interesting that you yourself had to then apply to go to a college in another country. So it's almost like the ultimate, um, what's that called? Um, participant observation. <laughs> Yes, yes, absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting that, you know, the sort of the way you have to think about uh, the preparation process does come in handy for 
you know, making your own future application. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Kind of came together there. So um, thank you for kind of setting the scene. And I'm already, you know, I was before we started recording very excited because your topic is it's just one of the the many things about South Asia that baffle me. But, you know, in my work with hereditary musicians or on the whole are not well off at all and from very traditional families where for instance there's really not a lot of focus on education for women to you know my uh, friends in Mumbai who, who lead these very global life like tuition is everywhere uh, coaching is everywhere and so I was just delighted to hear about your work what about the coaching industry particularly appeals to you it just feels like a topic that can be studied from a gazillion different angles, even within the discipline of anthropology itself. Yeah, absolutely. And I think its appeal as a research topic has something to do with, you know, those complexities and, and basically the ambivalence that a lot of people in India feel towards the coaching industry. Mm -hmm. You know, on the one hand, I think there is a sort of generalized sense if you speak to people that this is not a good thing. This is not really a desirable social outcome to have this coaching industry, to have tuition so dominant in people's lives for a variety of reasons, including, um, you know, the expenditure of money and time that goes into it. And I think there is a sense that this becomes uh, a way that social inequality is exasperated. It's, you know, increasing the financial barrier to accessing certain types of higher education. So that's, I think, a very dominant narrative. But on the other hand, um, for example, uh, Ajanta Subramanian has talked about this in the cast of Merit. Uh, coaching can also be perceived as sort of this access point um, for certain people with either sort of family backgrounds or coming from certain caste communities that might not have had the sort of educational privilege, even if perhaps you know they they have been able to acquire some financial capital, they might not have you know, someone in their home who's gone through, you know, certain educational pathways and the coaching for them becomes this sort of access point to these um, very sort of high status opportunities. And then a third perspective, I think, is, you know, if you look at people, who, you know, young people, especially who are act actively in these coaching classes, even if they, they themselves articulate some of these um, critiques of coaching as a larger system. When they talk about their own experience or their own relationship with, for example, their coaching teachers, with their batchmates in coaching, those are extremely valued and significant mm. relationships in their lives. So I think it's like these sort of complexities and contradictions that make coaching a really um, sort of interesting topic to research, also a difficult topic to research. Um, and yeah, I'm sort of trying to do justice to it, trying to see how, um, you know, coaching is figuring in these moments of transition from sort of education to maybe sort of career um, futures. It does sound like the kind of topic, and, and that's always difficult for grad students, like this is never ending, right? You could be working on this PhD for the next 40 years. I wish for you that that will not be what you do. <laughs> um, but, uh, <laughs> you and me both, right? <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, it's 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 so massive, um, but um, I'm sure you have uh, the guidance and, and the wisdom to uh, to curtail it and and at some point be done with it. And then we can't wait to see the book. So uh, year in Bihar, tell us um, 
why Bihar? What were you doing there? And and what were you thinking it was going to be like? Was it anything like that? Tell, tell us everything. Yeah, um, I ended up deciding to go to Bihar for a variety of different reasons. Um, but I think one of them was sort of this reputation that Bihar has um, in both sort of popular understandings and in a lot of scholarship across different disciplines as this sort of like space of backwardness, mm -hmm. um, of underdevelopment, mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, as a place where many aspirational young people are coming to pursue opportunities like um, preparing for the IIT or preparing for the Union Public Service Commission UPSC civil service exam. Um, many people come from Bihar to Delhi to do that sort of preparation. So both as a site of sort of lack, but also as this site of aspiration. Yeah. Um, and what I ended up particularly deciding to focus on um, was what's called sort of the general competition uh, coaching industry in the capital city of Patna. Mm -hmm. And this wasn't a term that I was familiar with before I started my field work, um, but general competition is sort of this um, field of preparation for uh, a fairly wide range of non-technical government jobs that could you know, range from, you know, in, in sort of the understanding of, of the different levels that it crosses could range from something like railways group B or Bihar police constable, um, potentially all the way up to something like UPSC, although whether that could be classified as general competition, I think is sort of a gray area, but basically a variety of these sort of state and central government jobs. Mm -hmm. And um, the general in the general competition, I think has a couple of different references. Um, it's, it doesn't have to do with the general category, which I think is um, sort of maybe a potential uh, source of misunderstanding. But it's um, it's sort of, uh, on the one hand, it's this group that's left over after certain young people have been selected into basically engineering and medical education of, right. of various stripes. Um, right. And so what's, what's sort of left are these more general pathways. Um, although I will also add that there were cases of students who, for example, completed their BTEC and then come back into general competition because they weren't satisfied with the job opportunities or the salary packages they mm. were receiving in the private sector. Um, so that, that was sort of one, of, one reference of the, the general competition kind of tag. And then another is this like general studies syllabus, which is basically all, all social science and science disciplines. Um, and this, this syllabus was the thing that was sort of common across a lot of these different levels of exams, again, like ranging all the way up to UPSC. Um, and maybe it would like take different forms and some people like sort of created these distinctions like, oh, on the UPSC exam, they, they ask like questions that require understanding, whereas on these sort of lower level exams, it's just general knowledge, like you just have to know the facts. So people were sort of creating these distinctions within this category of general studies, but some form of it was appearing on a lot of these exams. And I think, I think that for me, um, you know, speaks to this way in which general competition is this space where even though there are these distinctions being created, even though people do 
talk about government jobs as being of different levels. And of course, you know, there are material differences, there are different pay grades and things like that. Um, at the same time, there is something that's sort of common or general about this opportunity that can attract young people from a pretty wide socioeconomic spectrum, mostly affiliating themselves in some way with this sort of catch-all label of the middle class. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, to come and sort of like find their way amid this very wide range of opportunities through this sort of general competition process. Um, so that that was sort of my my focus. And and what did it look like when you were actually in Patna? What was a I'm sure that wasn't a typical day, but if you needed to distill a quote unquote typical day, what was that like? Yeah. So my my research was focused around two sites. Um, primarily within Patna. And one was um, this academic coaching center that was mainly preparing students. And I would say these, these particular students were sort of the upper middle class range within that context. Uh -huh. uh, maybe they'd gone to English medium high schools. I think that was, that was sort of a marker of distinction. Um, so one was this academic coaching center. It was preparing them mostly for bank and um, the staff selection commission exams. Mm -hmm. And then my other site was a physical training academy, which met in Gandhi Medan, which is a, a large park in the center of Patna. Um, and those, those people who were coming to the physical training were preparing for the physical exam to um, get you know, a police or defense job. So for example, um, Bihar police sub inspector was a very highly desirable post um, for many people. So coming to prepare for the physical exam that was in addition to two levels of written exam for that for that position. So I was going to these. I was attending, uh, you know, the training sessions and the classes, sort of as a student. I mean, of course, everyone knew I was not a real student, and sometimes, you know, there was that became a part of the commentary, like, oh, she's here. She's doing this training. She's not going to go into the Bihar police, but she's still, you know, trying hard. So, you know, that sort of became a part of the, you know, part of my presence in these in these spaces. But um, yeah, so I was basically going back and forth between uh, between those two, and um, in those places, a lot of my interactions were with young women, um, largely because I am, a, you know, a female researcher, and um, you know, there were certain certain spaces, particularly in the physical training where my interaction with young men was really not even permitted. Yeah. Um, so I think one of the things that then ended up coming up a lot in, in sort of my thinking, in my research was these sort of gendered mm -hmm. um, dimensions of this, of this preparation process. So for example, while a lot of young men um, might be trying to get a government job in order to get the largest possible dowry that they could. Young women were um, trying to get a government job in many cases, A, to have more choice in who they married and B, maybe to kind of like limit the dowry that they or their families would have to pay um, with the idea that a salary was this sort of like ongoing dowry that their in-laws could expect. So maybe they wouldn't take as much at the time of marriage. I, I, it's certainly more complicated than that. And, sure. you know, there are differences in individual cases. And, you know, it depended on like what kind of job you had and all of these things. But I think, you know, some, some of these um, gender dimensions were, you know, an important part of a lot of my, my conversations there in the field.
it's it's I I, I feel encouraged to know that uh, if if all else fails, um, the the Bihar police force is out there for you as a career opportunity. It's <laughs> yes. Uh, it's it's good to cast the net wide. Um, now I believe that you did actually participate in the physical training part of the academy. So tell us what that was like. Were you? I could imagine you either completely kind of being put in charge of it because going to the gym and those things is so natural for us here at Life in the United States, or that you were completely shell-shocked to realize that all that American training hadn't prepared you at all for the physical coaching. So tell us what, what happened. Yeah, um, well, I guess it was probably closer to the first, first option um, in the sense that many of the young women that were coming to this physical training had not done you know organized physical training of any kind before and so you know just as someone who dogs a little bit on a fairly regular basis I was you know already quite far ahead of, of you know many of the aspirants that were coming. not not all of them certainly. but um but I think the other aspect actually was um time spent because within the physical training in particular um, people were coming for very short periods of time, like in some cases, like one or two months. And so just with that kind of turnover, I was there for a year and that, that made me, you know, a senior person, you know, by the time I was halfway through my <laughs> research. Um, so that was a, sort of an interesting dynamic to negotiate. And, you know, there were times that I had to explain to Sir at physical training that, Third, if I'm conducting the exercises, you know, if I'm the person standing at the front telling them what stretches to do, then I'm not really interacting with them, which is not my purpose here. Right. So there was some negotiation around that. But yeah, it was a, it was an interesting combination of some some running on a track. Um, we often had to run in a kind of group formation, which was not as I initially thought, you know, because you might have to run that like that in the police or the military, but in fact. Um, was this sort of way of making sure that everybody um, was sort of taken along in this training process, that even the people who really came and couldn't run could keep up because we were running together very, very slowly. Okay. Um, so there would be some of that. There was some sort of strength exercises, um, stretching, you know, mostly sort of, I mean, almost entirely body weight uh, exercises. And then there would be certain, um, depending on what particular physical exam was coming up, there would be some combination of practice for uh, long jump, high jump, and shot put, which were um, activities that could could be part of some of these physical exams. So that would also be a component of the training. The combination of education and capitalism, I guess, is extremely problematic and, and not one that we need to dig into here. But just on the very kind of the micro level, I, I've heard stories of teachers in schools really not teaching and then charging their same students, their own very students for evening tuition and coaching. I don't know if those are true stories or just kind of cynical myths. Um, so do those kinds of things happen or is that more of a reflection of a, a general resentment about the state of education in India? I think uh, things like that absolutely do happen and they've been documented in, in other research. And, and there were a couple of cases that came up during my research as well. Although interestingly, the one, the case that's coming to mind was for that, for the student, quite a positive one. You know, she had 
one of her teachers had also had been a tuition teacher and he had really helped her with her math and then that had sort of created this foundation for her you know future um preparation for these competitive exams so so i think yeah i think these stories are absolutely true and i think there's also, whether in school or in higher education, there seems to be this sort of like race or like at least a positive feedback loop between students and teachers mm. evacuating these spaces of formal education in favor of coaching. And so, you know, if you ask teachers, oh, well, you know, why aren't you teaching in, in the classroom? And, and I'm thinking especially of in of many colleges in, in Bihar, especially outside of Patna, um, you know, they might say, well, the students don't come up. And if you ask the students, they'll say, well, the teachers don't come. So uh, I think there is this, this sort of sense that the many, many higher education institutions um, in Bihar have been sort of evacuated. And mm -hmm. I particularly remember one young man living in sort of a small town uh, in Patna district but outside of the city um, saying he only went into any college for exams whether that was the actual college exams or for competitive exams which wow. used colleges as exam sites and when he would go he would have to wipe off a thick layer of dust that had accumulated on the benches um, because these spaces really weren't being used um, as no, you know, regular classrooms. Wow. So I think there is this sort of like emptying out that has occurred. And, 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 you know, of course, you know, think that's a bad thing, but it's somewhat hard to imagine. Um, you know, I don't think, for example, you or I would suggest that higher education in India should be revamped so that it focuses on helping students prepare for government exams. Um, but at the same time, if it's if that's not the direction it's going to go, it's hard to sort of picture, well, what is going to bring, you know, students and parents back into these spaces and teachers back into these spaces, you know, what, you know, sort of rights-based or citizenship-based or some other sort of virtuous model of education is going to be attractive enough to bring these students back from the coaching centers, which have so effectively capitalized on this sort of like job aspiration, which is, has financial components, status components um, uh, for a lot of these young people and their families. So yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's a really important question. It's not, it's not a, you know, sort of situation I see a clear way out of. Mm. Um, so yeah, but I think it's, it's absolutely worth worth thinking about and certainly, you know, something that's come up in, for example, the new education policy, um, you know, how do we combat this uh, coaching culture, um, this exam culture, but it's... But in some ways, it actually feels more honest. I mean, if we think of, I mean, I have a son here in high school and, and he would love nothing more than to let the dust gather on, on the desk that he's supposed to sit at and just go in for the exam. So he, he's not allowed to listen to this podcast, clearly. Um, <laughs> but if we think of schools as, as um, sites where children go, you know, in the original thinking, and I'm by no means an expert on this, but the way I understand it in many ways, a way of keeping kids out of factories and allowing their parents to go into factories. I mean, education as it exists in the um, in the global north is not really about education, whatever we think. And 
so maybe in some ways this coaching model is way more honest why are we doing this we want to get the job at the end of it and and so it's kind of calling it what it is and so maybe anyway i don't want to be completely subversive but (laughs) a different way of looking at it absolutely yeah i think there is there is that sort of honesty to it um and i think that's where a lot of that ambivalence comes from that people aren't thrilled about this it doesn't quite seem to accord with sort of democratic principles of how education should work yet at the same time this seems like the only option for the kind of aspirations that many of these families hold yeah well it's totally fascinating and um that was going to be my final question so i'm going to backtrack a little bit through my um my kind of list of questions because my final question was going to be you know it does it work and i think you've kind of answered that that yes it does given uh given the limitations of the system as it is yeah, I, I think it's a it's an interesting question because, um, yeah, absolutely. Like within the sort of constraints of the system, it's hard to say that, you know, education geared towards test preparation wouldn't help people pass the test, right. particularly given that these centers, I think, have a fairly strong incentive. And, and to me, you know, the, the teachers and the, the managers that I've interacted with seem to have quite a genuine investment in the success of their students because that enables them to promote their business. So I don't think, you know, I don't think there's any, you know, I don't think there's any deliberate sort of pulling the wool over the eyes that's going on here. I do think there is an extent to which, um, you know, these, these coaching centers put the, as soon as you're in, they put the responsibility back on the students um, to pass the exams. And one of the ways they do that is by sort of demanding this very significant investment of time um, in the students' lives. So for example, in the physical training, students were expected to come twice a day for two to three hours a day. And in the academic coaching, it was typically three to four hours of lecture per day plus homework. And then on Saturdays and Sundays, it varied, but it, it, there were times it was up to like six or seven hours a day. So really, so, basically school then. I mean, it's... Yeah, it's, yeah absolutely. And, wow. and, and this and that was a, all of that time expectation was accompanied by this narrative of, well, okay, maybe you won't do all of this, but if you don't, then it's not really our fault. You haven't done the hard work. You haven't done the mehenna to pass this exam. Um, and so we're sort of re-responsibilizing you within this context um, by creating these sort of outsized expectations. Which is actually um, great. Yeah. And, and, and it counters the narrative that, you know, when you go for coaching, they basically do the work for you. I mean, it sounds like it's n- not like that at all. No, no. I mean, the students are, are expected to do a lot. Um, and it, it, it feels very different, for example, from um, if I think about like Craig Jeffrey's work in Time Pass, um, you know, interacting with young men who are sort of hanging out in, in Western UP, yeah. um, this feels like, you know, it's almost actively designed to counter that. Right. Um, not that there isn't some, you know, sitting around drinking chai in Patna. Of course, that is absolutely a part of sort of the student culture there. But it seems like the coaching centers and these training academies are actively, you know, sort of telling people, no, you must sort of actively utilize all of your time if you wish to, you know, actually attain these often very difficult to attain aspirations. 
It's that, yeah, that sound that does not sound unreasonable. Now, that was going to be my last question, but that's not now the last question because I do want to touch upon this point. So, this will be my uh, final question. I'm mindful of the time, but I, I, I wouldn't be me uh, if I didn't ask you about the language uh, that that take the language of tuition or of coaching. Um, and I mean, English as the medium of instruction, we know how English medium schools are looked um, upon in, in India. And now Hindi is also, I mean, it has been problematic um, from the get-go, but it feels increasingly politicized. And so I'm just wondering um, what you see happening in these coaching centers in terms of the medium of instruction and then the medium of kind of communication. Yeah. Um, absolutely. So I think uh, English did have a certain kind of um, prestige in terms of uh, those students who had had an English medium education being in uh, sort of a more privileged position, particularly within the academic coaching center where that, that was sort of the level of many of the students. But within Patna as a whole, um, and within that coaching center as well, English was not, um, you know, the medium of instruction for most coaching classes. There were some, but the vast majority, I would say, were classes taught in in Hindi. Um, and I think this is this is something that's important about this context because we do think of uh, English, or English has been framed in this way as a sort of cosmopolitan language that provides this access to these yes. global circuits of capital, whether that's yeah. cultural capital, financial capital. And I think what's distinctive about, about Patna, about general competition, is that you can sort of aspire to a better life, to a higher status, to you know a reasonable degree of financial security without having to totally transform yourself as a cultural subject to you know, grasp some kind of English um, you know, that has some sort of aspiration to being right. global. Um, and you, you can sort of come as you are in a sense. And I think that's something that's very um, important and distinctive about this form of aspiration. And yeah, I would say like um, the, me yeah, the medium of instruction at the academic coaching center where I was working was um, primarily Hindi with English keywords because yeah. many of the students did come from English medium backgrounds. Mm -hmm. That could change in a more rural setting or even in some other parts of Patna to be a, a sort of pure register of Hindi with Hindi keywords um, for students who would be sort of reading and taking the exam questions in Hindi. Um, and then regional languages were also present. Um, so sometimes that would be you know, a way that a teacher would kind of shift to a more informal way of speaking um, by, you know, bringing in a more Bhojpuri more inflected dialect um, or among students who were from uh, regions where there was a common language, sometimes they would, would shift into their mother tongue, whether that was Bhojpuri or Maghi or Metali, and, you know, interact a little bit in that. But I would say for the most part, um, sort of Hindi or a sort of uh, Patna Hindi was uh, the, the language most people were interacting in. Fascinating. Thank you so much. I've been very curious about that. So I'm glad we were able to get that into the podcast. Um, Isabel, I could talk to you for hours. This is fascinating. We just started uh, with the tip of the iceberg, but I can't wait to hear more. Um, come back when the book is ready. And in the meantime, <laughs> congratulations uh, on a very successful year in India and uh, good luck with everything that's ahead of you. 
Thank you so much. Yeah, really look forward to future conversations and, and thanks for having me. As always, thanks to Simrat Mataru for post-production and Soham Shiva for the intro and outro to the Saspot. Thank you for listening to the SASPOD, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can tune in again soon. Come, fair.